Hey, good morning, everybody. I will encourage you to find your seat now, please. Whoever used this podium last is a few inches taller than me. There we go. That definitely wasn't Sam. You're allowed to pick on people when they're not here. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to start by saying that we're really excited to see you guys. We're happy to be here. I'm excited to see all these faces. A lot of people I know, a few new faces. Welcome to Redstone Elizabethan. Also, I just want to give a shout out to the, the coffee, hospitality, water, and there's some sugar packets. Whoever does all that, thank you. Uh, feel free if you want water or coffee. Evan, it looks like you need a second cup, so they're right over there. Feel free. If you, if you fall asleep on me, then I will call you up. Um, I'm really excited for the opportunity to teach this passage, but I want to preface it with there's some bold, heavy statements that Peter comes out and makes. Some of them were quick to affirm. Others, it's easy to read past, and we want to kind of forget about the weightiness of what's being said here. And so I want to preface it by saying it's um, challenging, but a good challenge, and I want to uh, be appropriate and honest with what the word teaches, but also think there's a lot of hope and beauty in this passage, and we want to take time to look at that as well. Um, so far in 2 Peter, that's the, if you're new with us, this is the book we've been covering this semester and digging into, and we've been going at a pretty slow pace. We'll speed up a little bit today, so don't be overwhelmed when I show you the text for today and the number of verses, but uh, up to this point, we've really finished chapter one, but um, as we began the study and began looking at this book, the past few weeks we've really been using this outline to look at what is Second Peter all about. Um, we've talked about how we see this aspect of Peter writing to the church, writing to them, and, and this context of the end of Peter's life. He writes in this book and, and references several times that he knows his time is coming to an end. And so it's his last message that he can get out, and there's this emphasis that's added. You can feel the weight as he's writing as quick as possible to the churches. So in his last message, what does he want to be said? So one of the first things he reminds the church is, don't forget. And you see this aspect of don't forget the gospel. Don't forget gospel truth. Don't forget who God is, and don't forget who you are. And so there's this aspect, we really looked at it in chapter 1, and I don't have time to get into all the verses, but really this reminder of who the body is, and who God is, and, and what the gospel is, and hold firm to the truth, don't forget. But he also reminds them to don't stop growing, don't stay there, but in chapter 1 he talked about these attributes, these qualities of believers, and he talks about how growing in these things, growing in godliness, growing in these attributes. But then there's also this aspect of the book, and you see it kind of sprinkled throughout, but really what we're going to talk about today and what we'll talk about next week even more is Peter's warning the church. He says, don't be deceived. So there's a lot of emphasis, especially in chapter 2 and 3, on false teachers, false doctrines. He begins to warn against these that will come in. And he begins to encourage the church through reminding them, don't be deceived, be on guard. And then lastly, don't doubt his soon return. And as he talks about the false teachers, and we get to the end of this letter, we'll see Peter reminding and encouraging the church specifically, don't doubt his soon return. There was a tax then, and still today, but there was a tax on Jesus isn't coming back. Look, it's been a while, he's not back. Just live how you want. 
It's not a big deal. Peter is like waking up the church and reminding them, no, don't doubt. And he's coming. He's coming. And so this is kind of an overview of what we've talked about so far, where we're going to be at today, and kind of what's coming over the next few weeks. But today we find ourselves right at the beginning of chapter 2. Don't be overwhelmed. So it's 2 Peter chapter 2. There was a couple weeks where we literally only covered one verse or even half a verse. So we have 10 verses today. Um, and next week we'll have about the same. But it's okay. It's a good thing. But I want to start by reading this passage and then kind of explain a little bit of where we're headed. So the passage for today is 2 Peter chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 10. And the Word of God says this. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. And a lot of emphasis on this verse here. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Let me pray. God, we thank you and we worship you for the opportunity to gather together, to worship you with singing, to worship you with studying your word as we look at you and just adore you. We thank you for the opportunity to be together. Thank you for the physical ways that you've allowed us to come and gather and have this space and just the many ways you bless us. Again, we pray for Jerry and uh, Sam this morning. Um, We just pray for recovery for Jerry, and we just ask, God, that you would be with them. But now we ask that you would be with us here as we study this word, that you would open the eyes of our hearts, help us to focus, help us to um, prioritize and to keep the main thing the main thing and to remember what it is that you're teaching us through your word. I pray that you would help me uh, to be um, faithful to the scriptures I pray that you would help us to listen well and to learn. And as Rachel prayed earlier, that when we leave here, we would be a little bit more like you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. And so this passage is a lot to read here, especially as we've looked at chapter 1 and really beginning. And what I referenced a second ago, you can really see it now. This don't be deceived. This warning began to come from the mouth of Peter. Chapter 1, there was, he looked at true qualities of believers and true faith and the true gospel. We'll get into more of that next week. But then we start into this and he says, but. He starts the chapter with the word but. That's kind of a, you know, helps us to zero in. He's about to switch gears. He just looked at what true prophets look like and he says, but. And so we go into chapter two and he says, but false teachers will. They will arise. There's this guarantee. 
Um, as we transition from laying out the foundations of what true gospel is and true teaching and true prophets, now he begins to switch and our attention focuses to false teachers and false doctrines, false qualities and false fruit. But he promises in verses 1 through 3 here, the beginning of this passage, he basically guarantees that false prophets will arise, they will teach, but he also guarantees that they will be destroyed. Their teachings will be destroyed, and those who propagate them and follow them will also be destroyed. So there's two guarantees. He says false prophets will come, but in God's timing they will cease, and their teachings will as well. And, and then in verses 1 through 3, he begins to describe some of the qualities and some of the attributes of false teachers. But then we get into really what the emphasis for today we're going to look at in verses 4 through 9. Because Peter begins to delicately but beautifully lay out, it reminds me of in a college course or even a high school, elementary school. It's the basic when you have to write a paper, when you have to argue and make a point. You make your point and then you support your point. We've all learned that pretty basic levels. You just build upon it as you grow in your education. But the basic foundation of making a point is it's very helpful to have supporting information to back up your claim. If your claim stands alone, then people might believe you, especially if they trust you, but there's not much there. But if you make a claim and you support it with evidence, now you begin to bolster and support what you're saying is actually in fact true, and you have evidence to prove it and others to back you up. So Peter does this very well. But he does it not in reverse order. I would have put verse 9 first. That's just the way I like to write and to communicate. I would say, for God knows how to rescue the godly in verse 9. And I would also say that first, I would then say, God knows how to punish the unjust. But Peter does it the opposite way of what I would do, and that's perfectly fine. The point's still the same. Verses 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, he says, for. And, or I'm sorry, he says, for if, if. He says, if God, if this. And begins to give us several Old Testament accounts, which we'll look at. He uses all these to support, and then to the culmination in verse 9, all these if-then statements. If this, if this, if this. And finally, we get to verse 9, he says, then. So that keys you to know that verses 4 through 8, all of these if statements, were all leading up to the then statement that comes in verse 9. And so that's why you're going to see me put a lot of attention on verse 9 today. Because 4 through 8 are all building and pointing to his point, his main argument in verse 9. 4 through 8 are the supporting verses as they perceive that. But then right there at the, the verse 10, and next week we're going to look at verse 10 all the way into verse 16, and we'll go back a little bit and touch on verses 1 through 3. The reason being is 1 through 3, Peter begins to describe what false teachers are like. And then in verses 10 through 16, he continues this describing of false teachers, but also begins to help lay out what they're teaching, but also what their qualities are and how to be able to identify them. But there's a lot here, and so this week we want to really look at why is Peter referencing these three Old, Test Old Testament passages and then zooming in in verse 9 is what point, is what is the main point of this section of Scripture? What is Peter really advocating for and pushing in the middle of the context of his warning against false teachers? And then next week, we'll look at those false teachers. We'll look at what doctrines were being propagated. What are the warnings that Peter gives? What are the qualities and the attributes of these false teachers? So he spends a lot of time doing that. But I think in order for us to understand the scope of this entire chapter, we need to be firm in understanding what is being said here in verse 9, and then why is he using verses 4 through 8, and how is he using them 
with scriptural evidence to support what he's saying. So that is an overview of what will be said today and next week. So we can dismiss and leave because you just heard both sermons. Um, and Joel's already starting to nod off. You're doing great, buddy. I'm just kidding. So as we think about this passage, as like I've said several times, verse 9 is where a lot of our emphasis will be. And so um, we're going to start there with truth number one. And remember, I said a second ago, the reason why we're just going to go ahead and jump into verse 9, because verses 4 through 8 are all pointing to what's being said in verse 9. And don't worry if you're like, what about verses 1 through 3? We're going to use those a little this week, but next week we're going to spend some time digging into that. But here in verse 9, Peter comes out with this statement. He's been saying if, if, if. And he says in verse 9, this is where it's at. He says, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. So the first emphasis, the first truth is the first half of this verse. Peter says, if all these things are true that I just explained to you, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. There's a lot of hope. And that statement right there, a lot to be said and a lot to be unpacked. Right in the middle of expounding upon false teachers and their doctrines and all this negative, Peter takes time to remind the believers of a key truth and an encouragement about God. His focus is on what God is like and who he is. He is a God that rescues. And so as Peter is warning, he pauses and then he takes time to remind the believers of what God is like. First part of this verse, he says, God is a God that rescues and there are two Old Testament passages nestled in right there in verses uh, 5 through 8 that are used to support the specific claim about God rescuing his people from trials. And then verse uh, 4, we're going to look at it here in a second. He uses it um, to support another claim. But for this claim, for this statement, that God knows how to rescue the godly from trials, Peter uses two Old Testament accounts to support what he's saying. And he's saying it's true because... We've seen it to be true. I don't know if the Vernons are here today, but I know the Hearst are. Or if you've ever worked at a summer camp or any, anywhere that you've ever had to put yourself in a harness that's going to hold you 30, 40 off the, feet off the ground, you want to put a lot of trust, or you will be putting a lot of trust and faith that that thing will rescue you from dying. And I worked at a summer camp one time, and it's enough for a person that I kind of trust, or maybe the guy that was teaching me when I began to work at this ropes course, he was like, this harness will save your life. I'm like, what? I mean, I believe you, but I don't really know that to be true. I just, I mean, thank you for that observation. But how do I know that this specific harness was manufactured properly? How do I know you didn't cut it? How do I, you know, we begin to ask these questions, especially I'm not a huge fan of heights. I don't know anybody that really is a fan of heights, but uh, anyways. But then there's something to be said when that person puts themselves in that harness and they go out and hang them, dangle themselves off and show you and say, not only am I telling you that this harness can save you, but now I'm giving you evidence to say, look, it can. It has been proven to rescue. You can see with your own eyes, it has showed that it is proven to rescue and to hold in the past. And as the person's dangling, looking at me, teaching me, and my, I'm understanding that it's proven that it will rescue you now in the present. And I'm going to make the assumption that, okay, it will also continue to hold going forward. And this is a common way that we support or evidence things. We say, this thing is like this. You should believe this, but let's look. Let's see if it's been true in the past. So Peter follows this same argument that Jesus, uh, that God knows how to rescue the godly from trials. 
But he looks first here in verse 5. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserve Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So the first text that Peter uses to support his claim that God knows how to rescue the godly from trials, he goes all the way back to the account of Noah. And from the moment sin entered the world, looking at Genesis 6 through 9, and so if you want to note that and go back and read this, but Genesis 6 through 9 is where we find the account of Noah and and this whole situation with how um, God has Noah build the ark and and then God punishes the world by flood. He says um, in verse 5, but it looks at, look at Noah. God preserved him with seven others. So from the moment sin entered the world in Genesis 3 up to this point in the biblical account, the sin of man had continued to spiral downward into a darker depravity. And ungodliness of mankind reaches a point in which God determines to punish the ungodly and cleanse the earth of unrighteousness. And if you read Genesis 6, it's a very somber passage there at the beginning. It says that God uses this term, but almost gives us the idea that he regretted that God was, I will do away with mankind because of the darkness and the sin that had continued to grow. But right there at the first few verses of Genesis 6, it says, God, but Noah found favor in the eyes of God. God's favor and grace and mercy, he decided that he would save some and that he would rescue. And so we see him speak to Noah and call him out. And you know the story well, and if not, go read Genesis 6 through 9. But you see that through this amazing work and this ark, as God brings the flood, God rescues Noah and seven others. And not to, not to mention all the animals that they somehow packed on that boat, but that's another time to talk about. But in God's grace, he chooses to rescue Noah and his family through the ark, and they're saved from the flood. And we're going to look at this passage several more times as we come back and look at other parts of this text. But for now, for this point, at the beginning of verse 9, Peter says God knows how to rescue the godly from trials. And in other words, in paraphrase, he's saying, look at Noah. God knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Look at Noah. He's proven it. He's done it. If that's not enough, then we look at verses 6 through 8. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. But look at this right here in verse 7. And if he, God, rescued righteous Lot... So he's continuing this argument that God knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Look at Noah. Point number one. Noah evidenced it. His family, they were saved by God. He knows how to rescue the godly. And if that's not enough, he says, look at the situation with Lot. As God determines to bring wrath and destruction on these cities. And the depravity of man and sin had gone up and God was disgusted. He decides and in his mercy to rescue Lot. And if you go, this account is found in Genesis 18 and 19. If you want to go and read more to understand the full context. But as we go from Noah's story in Genesis 6 through 9, a few chapters later, we'll find this story in the book of Genesis. The story of Lot and God's destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Due to the wickedness of these cities, God again determines, and this is what Peter says, 
to condemn them to extinction in verse 6. That's very heavy. But Lot, the nephew of Abraham, has moved and lives in this place. And God sends two angels to go to Sodom and rescue Lot and his family from the destruction that will come upon them. And again, in Genesis 18 and 19, you can find this account and this story and this awful things that take place. These angels come and they're like, Lot, we got to get out of here. Not only do you see Lot believes them, he attempts to protect them, but Lot even goes to his son-in-laws and says, hey, these guys have come and I believe them. We got to get out of here. It says that his son-in-law thought he was joking. They dismiss him. But Lot believes the word of God. And it's accounted to him as righteousness. He believes the word of God. It says that his heart is torn over the sin around him. Sometimes we give Lot a really bad rap as we think about what happens in Genesis 18 and 19 and even what follows in Genesis 20. But here in this moment, Peter is arguing that as he looks at the account of Lot, as God is inspiring Peter to write, he's saying that, number one, God is merciful to save. Lot, who chose to go to these destructive cities but was torn by their sin, God is merciful to rescue him, so much so that God sends two angels specifically to go and physically pull Lot and his family out of the sure destruction. The angel said, he says there in the Genesis account, he said, we can't do anything until you're out of here. So you got to get out of here because we have been called. God will destroy and punish sin. But look at the hope. Look at God's work and his mercy and grace. As, he, as Lot, in, in the words of what it says about Noah, Lot also finds favor and God rescues them to bring them out. So as we look at this, Peter refers to these references to take time to see the gracious rescuing that takes place. And again, we'll come back to verses 6 through 8 to continue to dig in what Peter's saying here. But for truth number one, for Peter's claim in verse 9 that God knows how to rescue the godly, he says, look at Noah. He says, look at Lot. Peter's like, I don't even have to get out of the first half of the book of Genesis to prove my point. God knows how to rescue the godly. And not only does he know, but Peter is, in other words, Peter is saying, he doesn't just know in his mind, like God knows how to do it. He's like, look, he's proven that he does do it. God knows how to rescue his people from trials. And he's been faithful to show this throughout the scriptures. Then we can put our faith in that he will continue to be in the business of rescue. I'm reminded of the account in 1 Samuel When David goes before King Saul, we see this same argument, not arguing in a negative way, but the same point being made by David. He defends his point the same way that Peter does before Saul. Look at this. This is found in 1 Samuel 17, but I just want to look at these verses. Goliath has come. We all know this story. You know, Goliath's this big shine. He's yelling and cursing the people of God, and they're all afraid. And Peter's like, well, what's going on here? Somebody needs to do something. And they're like, whoa, or I'm sorry, David. And they're all like, uh, David, you're like this tiny little guy. You just need to shut your mouth. You don't know nothing about war. He's like, I don't, may not know anything about war, but I know who God is, and this is wrong. We need to do something. Well, then all the people hear it, and they're like, somebody send David up to the king. Let him deal with it. Long story short, David comes before the king, Saul, and this is the conversation that takes place. I imagine Saul sitting there, and he's like, okay, I'm hearing some rumors that you think you got an answer to this problem. He's sizing him up, and he's, okay, what you got to say? David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant, he's referred to himself. I'll go out and fight with the Philistine. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go out against the Philistine to fight with him. For you're but a youth. I can picture him just kind of laughing at this. 
He's been a man of war from his youth, referring to Goliath. But man, look at this. David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock. I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. So right now you see this emphasis on kind of like what David had done. But it's really cool to note here. Verse 34 and 35, David refers to things that have happened in the past to support his claim of what's about to happen in the present. But right now you're like, well, David's just talking about what he's done. But you see, David understands that, yeah, David physically was the one fighting with these animals, fighting in these trials. But look where he gives all the credit. Verse 36, your servant has struck down both lions and bears. This uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he is to follow the armies of the living God. Verse 37, sorry, this is where he gives the, the credit. And David said, the Lord who delivered me. But wait, didn't David just say, I chased the lion and the bear? But then in verse 37, he quickly turns around and says, the Lord, Yahweh, who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. And then we know how that story ends. But looking at this, David, in the same vein, in the same way that Peter does, he makes a claim about who God is, really. He's like, I'll go fight with him because God has proven that he rescues the godly. He says God has proven in the past with the lion. He's proven in the past with the bear. And he'll prove to be faithful now because God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so David said, if God can do it then, God will do it now. And Peter's saying the same thing. God is the one that knows how to rescue the godly. We see an interesting exchange between David and Saul, but it's the same argument that Peter brings. And despite the particulars of trials or the challenges that David or Peter give us insight, they both tell us where our focus should be. God has been faithful to rescue before. He will be faithful to rescue now. And he will continue to be faithful to rescue until the end of time. This attribute of God demonstrating his mercy through rescuing his people has been on display all throughout the biblical account. Peter just uses two accounts just from Genesis alone, but he could have spent time commentating on the entire scripture. And I'm just looking at one instance where David himself does the same example in his own life, looking at God's faithfulness to rescue in the past and then his consistency to be the God of rescue. God is the one that knows how to rescue. He has the ability to rescue, but as well as the one who does rescue. So Peter's not just saying God understands the concept of rescue, but because we see that in the way that he's arguing in verses five through eight, and even though in verse nine he says God knows how to rescue the godly, we, uh, we kind of get, we can see clued off as Peter talks about God actually acts upon that knowledge and that capability to rescue. So yes, God knows how to rescue, but God does rescue. So there's this sense of God is the only one that has the authority to rescue, the ability to rescue, the capabilities and the knowledge. But not only does he stay there with that knowledge, but he acts in his grace and mercy. Praise God, he acts. He reaches out, he rescues. And so we see this, take hope. In this somber, and there's just some heavy things, and we're gonna keep digging into that. Peter takes time to focus, and David took time to focus on in the middle of the trial, in the middle of the situation, in the middle of whatever challenge or temptation was at hand, the focus was on who God is and who God has been. 
They zoom in on God is a God of rescue. He's rescued and will continue to rescue his people. The focus is placed upon who God is. So as we think about truth number one, and these questions are in your worship God as well. But as we think about this first truth, some questions came to my heart. As we read this, and as Peter's writing to the church, surrounded by false teacher, he's encouraging them. He's encouraging them in this warning about false teachers. He's saying, God knows how to rescue us in the midst of trials. You're going to be in the middle of a trial, false teachers. It's going to be really hard, but take hope. God knows how to rescue. But do you trust and believe that God is a God of rescue? Peter's making the statement. He supports it with two Old Testament claims. And again, scripture, it's all of scripture is filled with examples of God's rescue, physical rescue and help and assistance, all in different ways to his people. So Peter's saying, do you trust and believe that God's a God of rescue? And as we read that today, we're faced with the same question. Do we believe Peter? He's arguing from scripture, but do we believe him? And then it goes on, how have you seen God's rescuing and protection in your life? And we could spend a lot of time sharing the mic, talking on this question alone right here. I thought back in my life, how have I seen God's physical just help? Even when he doesn't have to, how has God helped me? How has he rescued me from trials, whether they be physical trials, emotional, spiritual? Take a second and think about your life. Because Peter is, is arguing, he's, he's saying God's been proven to do it before. He's got a really great track record. So trust him. He's a God of rescue. It's who he is, but it's also what he does. That's really important to understand. It's who he is in his nature. He has the ability to do it. But Peter's saying he does do it. And so he's using this as an encouragement to the believers. As you're surrounded by false teachers and, and everything's being pulled and torn, and, and even those rising up in your midst, midst that you thought were true believers are beginning to say things that are bringing hurt and doubt to the church, and as you're overwhelmed by the pain of this trial, take hope. Hold on. God is a God of rescue. He will rescue his people. In the middle of whatever's happening, Hold fast to the truth, not of who we are, not of what we've got, but just cling to the truth of who God is. He is a God of rescue. And, and just these questions are produced as we think about that. So as we look at that, we go back to verse 9, because Peter doesn't make just one, but two really bold claims. So truth number two, if verse 9 again he says, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials, what we just looked at, the second half of the verse, and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. So again, in Peter's taking time to encourage and warn the church from false teachers, he pauses here to encourage them from these Old Testament accounts. And you have to remember this, this verse is written to be an encouragement and a reminder of who God is. He's writing to believers, and they are to take hope and encouragement that God knows how to rescue the godly. We spent time looking at that. But he also says, as we're going to look again now, go back, we're going to look at verses 4 through 8 again, but with this part of verse 9 in mind. He says, God knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. So let's look at this here. First, he comes out using the same two biblical accounts that we just discussed, Noah 
in Genesis 6 through 9, and then Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot in Genesis 16 through 18. We'll look at those again. But then in verse 4, there's this reference to another passage or another account, a historical account of God acting um, that supports this claim of God knowing and acting upon judgment of sin. So if we look at verse 4, he says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. And then it ends there because then in verse 5 he goes on to say, For if, and then in verse 6, if, all leading again to verse 9. So this is his first support, but this one is supporting his claim in verse 9 that God knows how to keep the unrighteous under judge or until the day of judgment. And so he's saying here in this reference that God has proven, God has shown that he knows and deals with unrighteousness. Especially as we're thinking about this concept of false teachers and the unrighteousness of those false teachers. And, and so as I was studying this, this is one of those passages that has a couple different directions that commentators and biblical scholars look at. Because Peter doesn't give us an exact reference of what he's talking about. He just says if God did not spare angels when they sinned. And so as some people read this, they look at the account in Genesis 6. In the first few verses, we see a reference to um, this chapter. We see a situation in which individuals refer to as the sons of God. And they were taking the daughters of man. And this is the wording that's used there in Genesis 6. And they were taking them as their wives. And so a lot of people read what Peter talks about. And they say, okay, that is pointing us to what happens in Genesis 6. Because sons of God is referring to angels and they're having these relations with, with women and so we're seeing this sin that's produced. And that could be correct. That could be what Peter's talking about, but he doesn't specify. But others say, no, in Genesis 6, that reference is to the sons of Seth, who is the son of Adam. And it's just referring to the sons of God or sons of the godly, righteous men. Because the term sons of God can be used Sometimes in scripture for angels, sometimes it's used to refer to people. And so other commentators and studies, they say, no, Genesis 6 is referring to just people. It's not referring to angels. What Peter's talking about here is this is the account of Lucifer and his rebellion against God and the angels who followed him. We see in Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 references to this account. And we can also look at Revelations to see how this will end. So either way, if Peter is talking about angels who were having inappropriate relationships with women and producing immoral things, or if what Peter's talking about is, no, this is referring to the rebellion of angels against God that we see referenced throughout Scripture, and ultimately we see this guaranteed destruction throughout Revelation as God conquers and forever um, destroys these angels and Satan and, and all of this rebellion. Either way, the point is still the same. Peter is saying, he's telling his audience, if God did not spare angelic beings in their sinfulness, he will not spare ungodly people or those who teach and follow anything other than the truth of God. He's basically saying, if you look, his first support is that God has shown that he will punish angels and their rebellion. Whatever specific rebellion he's referring to, he's referring to a rebellion. And he's saying that if God showed that he will punish and cast to hell these angelic beings, then in verse 9 he says God knows how to keep unrighteous and ungodly people under judgment. But then he goes on, he doesn't leave it there. 
He looks again at verse um, 5 of Noah, and now we'll look at it from this angle, again in Genesis 6 through 9. The destruction of the ungodly through a worldwide flood, if he did not spare the ancient world. When he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, we know this account. I love this story because I just love to think about all the animals coming into a boat. But the points Peter's saying, like we can talk about the animals on a boat all we want, but the main point is God was wrathful towards sin. Mankind had spiraled out of control. And God, the one that's just and holy and in authority, deemed it worthy to flood the world. Except, and we already talked about it, his righteousness and his grace to save a few. But right now in the second half of verse 9, Peter again using the, the Noah account, but now he's supporting his claim that God knows how to keep the unrighteous under judgment. Because he's shown to do it. And so again, we look at this destruction of the world. He's making his point from verse three even more clear. Even though we do see the mercy of God with Noah, we also see God's judgment of sin. Whereas the wrath of God in verse three is, um, I'm sorry, the wrath of God in verse four is referring to the punishment of angels. Here Peter's reminding his readers of God's punishment upon the earth, the whole earth. And this sombering account is used by Peter to remind his audience that those who propagate and follow false teachers are walking in rebellion to the truth of God and his word. And their destruction and punishment is guaranteed. Peter's saying God doesn't change. If you look at this rebellion of angels and look at the world in Noah's day in Genesis 6, God has shown it to be true. He knows and does judge sin and punishes If by this point Peter's not made himself very clear, as we're just hit one blow after another, he refers to one more example of God's judgment. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. So we already looked at this text once, supporting the claim that God knows how to rescue the righteous. We see that in Lot and his family. But now we look at the text supporting the other part of his claim in verse nine. If by this point, Peter's audience or those that are reading now, if we haven't understood what Peter's saying, he will make it explicitly clear. Earlier we looked at Lot and we looked at... um, I'm sorry, earlier we looked at Noah and we looked at Lot and how God rescued them. On the other hand, Peter makes it very clear that sin and wickedness of these cities brought the wrath of God upon themselves. And again, we don't have time to describe the whole context, but Genesis, um, let's see, 18 and 19 is where you'll find this account. But looking at this, due to the gross and deplorable rampant sin of these places, God deemed it necessary to destroy them. God even told Abraham that if he had been even 10 righteous people in these cities, that God would have spared them, again, showing his heart for rescue. Because Abraham's praying to God, and he says, what about just 10? If there's just 10 people, spare the cities. And God says, for 10, I would. There's not. So we see the weight of sin and ungodliness and unrighteousness. Peter uses this example to complete his argument that God brings about the judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Peter's intending for this passage, this claim to hit hard, and he holds no punches. This is a passage we like to dodge. We don't like to think about. 
Peter has no problem going there. Peter's stirring up the people of God. He says here in the book of Peter, by way of reminder, I want to stir you up. He's saying, wake up. Don't fall for this, this lies. God is not to be taken lightly. These false teachers don't fall for it. God is a God of justice. God is a God of wrath upon sin. Don't fall for the belief. Don't downplay it. Don't ignore it. God is shown to be true. He didn't spare angels. He didn't spare the entire world except for one family. And he didn't spare two cities. When it is time for judgment to take place, God follows through and deals with it appropriately according to his wisdom. And so Peter's saying that no matter what the false teachers propagate, and no matter what they're teaching, don't fall for it. He says, I want to stir you up. I want to remind you. Destruction is guaranteed on the ungodly. And this is who God is. He says, look at God's character and his justice and his holiness. He acts. He's shown to be true. He does it and he will continue to respond to sin in his timing. In the midst of false teachings of their day, Peter's reminding the church that sin is destructive. Unrighteousness will be dealt with by God himself. And yes, he's referring to false teachers, but you can see he's also referring to any who would follow those false teachers. In other words, any who would follow any way other than the way of salvation, other than the truth of God. Sin will be dealt with. God is just and he will not be mocked. He's the only one with the authority as well as the justice to righteously judge sin and unrighteousness. And Peter is giving a scriptural evidence. He's not just saying it. He's claiming it and supporting it with scriptural truth to show that God knows how to punish sin in his timing and does indeed follow through. And he will follow through. Sometimes we can be tempted to avoid or downplay these truths. When I read this text, I immediately want to go on. I don't like this. We want to downplay the wrath of God upon sin. We want to ignore it. Or we want to find theological ways to just work around it and explain that it's not true anymore. We're tempted to think maybe the God of the Old Testament was different than the God of the New Testament. There are teachers in our modern day movements now who claim and stand boldly claiming scriptural support that this is indeed the truth. That's a false teaching. Peter's spending his time warning against it right here. If God had changed from the Old Testament to New Testament, then why would Peter use Old Testament references to who God is to support his claim of what God would be like in the New Testament church? Peter understands, he has no problem understanding that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus himself had no problem with understanding this truth. For we see that Jesus teaches us an understanding and gives us insights about hell more than he does heaven in the teachings that we have in Scripture. Maybe it's because Jesus knew that if it didn't come from the mouth of the Son of God himself, then people would dismiss it because they're already tempted to dismiss it. And it's coming from Jesus himself, giving us parables and stories and teachings about the destruction and sin and hell and its reality. Peter makes it clear it's important that we remember that God is faithful to his nature. He remains the same forever. God is the God of justice. He has been and he always will be. Even Paul, a New Testament believer, even in Paul's writing, he says, for the wage of sin is death. And we love to look at the second part as we should, but the free gift of God. But to those who do not receive this gift, he is saying for all who are found in sin, the wage is death. In other words, destruction. 
Paul is supporting hand in hand with what Peter claims, with what the teachings of Jesus show. God's judgment comes upon sin. We've seen this in the Old Testament, and we see this affirmed in the New Testament. And I'm afraid that in our desire to avoid offense, in our desire to not be labeled and to run away from these teachers of fire and brimstone, he's a brimstone preacher, I don't want to be around that guy, it makes me feel bad. Have there been people that have messed up and have leaned too far in one direction and used it to manipulate people? Yes, we should also protect against that. But that doesn't mean we should completely ignore the fact because Jesus didn't have, Jesus didn't ignore it. Doesn't accurately understand that Jesus taught himself about hell. He clearly understood and taught the punishment of all sin would be eternal and that apart from faith in his saving work, no one would have access to God. Jesus himself felt pity for his own home people that he had been working in, but they, he said that it would be better for them, for the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, he said it's better for them than the judgment that would come upon his people who did not believe him because of the works that he had done. He said, why do you not believe? The judgment that will come to you will be worse than the judgment that happened at Sodom and Gomorrah. So there's Jesus' own lips referring to that God judges sin in the Old Testament and he has not changed. This lie also downplays the work of the gospel. Jesus fully recognized the depth of the punishment of sin and unrighteousness that it carried with it. So much so that Jesus gave himself as a sacrifice in order to pay the price for the punishment of sin. If Jesus did not go to the cross in order to pay a price, then what was he doing? He understood the weight of the wrath upon sin. And in order to not deter God's holiness, Jesus Christ willingly and obediently went to the cross to pay for the price that this sin, the, the wrath of this sin, that sin brought upon it. If that's not the case, if Jesus didn't understand that sin wasn't really a big deal and God had just kind of changed, God is now merciful and gracious. In the Old Testament, he's harsh. But in the New Testament, God's merciful. Then what's Jesus doing? Why would he go to a cross if God's character had changed? But the scriptural account does not give us that. God does not change. But in God's mercy, Jesus chose and obediently and willingly went to the cross to pay the price for this sin and this unrighteousness. The false teachers will be destroyed by God, and Peter promises it, as well as their false teachings and all who would follow any way that is opposed to the only way of truth. In other words, all unrighteousness and sin and ungodliness. Peter has no problem with boldly declaring these heavy truths, and despite the weightiness of this reminder, we too must not ignore this truth. In combating false teachers in the war for truth, as he fights against these false teachers, Peter reminds the readers of who God is. And part of that is the wrath that comes upon unrighteousness and the ungodly. Peter is encouraging the readers, even though this doesn't feel like encouragement, he's encouraging the readers that God will see all unrighteousness and God will take care of it. And as an encouragement to the believers, he said, it's not your place. You're not the judge. You be faithful to the truth. God will deal with sin. You be faithful to the truth and the true teachings. God will deal with the unrighteous. So the questions that this heavy topic brings to my heart and I put in the worship guide. Do you trust and believe that God is a God of justice and holiness and punishes all sin? Are you like me that there's times you're tempted to downplay sin, whether it's your own sin or the sin of others? 
Or do we want to downplay the judgment of sin? And God will just kind of pat his sin on the back. How could God punish sin that great of amount? Everybody's sinning and there's no way he could do it. Peter's saying, well, hang on a second. He just destroyed the entire earth except for one family. Do we downplay the judgment of sin? Because then what we're doing is are we downplaying the holiness of God? Are we downplaying the righteousness of God? Or are we downplaying the reality of hell? There's a lot of weight here. I felt a lot of weight this week preparing for this sermon, thinking about this truth. I was weeping, reading about the account of God's destruction. It's heavy. And I think Peter wants it to be. He is stirring up the church. Don't fall for it. Don't follow it. Don't propagate it. God's not to be mocked. As we'll look at next week, the false teachers were living out lives of sin and all unrighteousness. And they were trying to pull people into it and claiming that it was godliness. And Peter's saying, don't fall for that. Don't. God is faithful to who he is. He's not to be played with. But as we think about this, as we think about this truth and this claim, and stepping back again, we've looked at verses 4 through 8, these old three Old Testament accounts that Peter uses for his claim in verse 9. That God is a God of righteous deliverance, that he knows how to save and rescue the righteous, and then his claim that he knows how to judge and, and punish the sinful. We've looked at this. We've dug into it a lot. I have no idea how long I've taken, but we've, we've dug into it a lot. But if you'll bear with me for just a few more minutes, there is hope built into this text. And as I began to read it, I was overwhelmed in my heart because I couldn't help but ask the question and notice there are two groups of people in this text, and I don't have it right here, but if you go back and look in the entire passage, verses 1 through 10, there's two groups of people. And he uses a little bit of different words here and there, but the, there's synonyms, and the truth is the same. There's unrighteous people. There's ungodly people. There's wicked, including angels in this as well. Wickedness, unrighteousness, ungodliness. He's using this to describe one camp of people. But then look. As you read, there's this assumption built in the passage. There's this other group of people. He describes them as godly. He describes them as righteous, specifically referring to Noah and to Lot. And then in verse 9, he opens it up and he says, for God knows how to rescue godly, referring to all those who would be described as godly. So in Peter's main argument, talking about who God is, there's this foundational presupposed truth that the readers would understand there are two groups of people. There are godly and there are ungodly. There are righteous and there are unrighteous. There are those who are walking in a life of wickedness and those who are not. And he continues to use this language. But my question is, how do you become godly? I couldn't read the text, but help think, how do you get in that group? I don't know about you, but when I read it, I'm like, I don't want to be in the other group. How do I get in the, the godly camp? I want to spend time with those people. Through Jesus Christ alone, the ungodly can become godly. In, in chapter 1 of 2 Peter, he even described an attribute of those who believe the gospel as godliness. 
He says, grow in godliness, referring to the believers. So Peter has no problem referring to people as being godly. And look, I just kind of put the reference there. This the entire passage we're looking at is where I'm pulling this truth from. So he spends time talking about two groups of people, and I just kind of explain that for a second. And as we spend time, look at Peter's reminders of the truth about the just punishment of sin and ungodliness. It's overwhelming. However, in this passage, there's this built-in hope. For the judgment of sin is for the ungodly. However, the godly are rescued. But all who are God's people were once considered ungodly, and therefore the truth must stand that somehow people's status as ungodly can change to a status as godly. And if that wasn't the case, then Noah and Lot wouldn't even be mentioned here and Peter wouldn't even have to spend time talking about the rescuing of the righteous. So as I'm reading it, as we look at this, you've got to see this. Not only does God rescue the godly from trials, because Peter's referring to, I think he's referring to some physical trials and temptations. As the false teachers come, God will rescue you. He's also talking about a God that saves spiritually. He saves the ungodly and makes them godly. For scripture teaches that all people are sinful and fall under the punishment of God against unrighteousness. Because as I was reading this passage earlier, it's tempting to read it and then to just think like, go get them, God. Go sick them. Go get those ungodly people. What if you were to read it and remember, apart from Christ, we are ungodly. And that's where I felt the weight. As I was reading the passage, weeping, that apart from the cross and apart from the gospel of Christ, at some point in my future, it would be no better than what we just read about in Sodom and Gomorrah. It would be no better than what we just read about in the flood. Not just physical, but eternally and spiritually. And as we read these Old Testament passages, we must understand that sin and unrighteousness hasn't decreased or weakened. If anything, it's gotten worse. We can see, I I was reading a reference, and if anybody's going to preach, you got to bring in some big names to support you. So I just went straight to the top, kind of joking. And I saw quotes from Billy Graham, but his wife, Ruth, also. I don't know who said it first and who stole from who. But they said that if God doesn't judge America, they don't have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. And what I get from that text, it's not just trying to be hopeless, But what we see is it's easy for us to read this account in Genesis and be like, well, those people were bad. They must have been really bad. But then if you read in Genesis the descriptions of their sins, the descriptions of their culture, and then you look around us, and apart from Christ, you look in your own heart, really similar. Sin hasn't decreased. Man's unrighteousness apart from God hasn't changed The holiness of God will never change and his standard of righteousness will never be diluted. So what's the change? In order for sinful and righteous people to be declared righteous and godly, Jesus Christ did the unthinkable. And I'm I'm trying to to hurry up, but I'm just going to read several passages. So these aren't my words. I'm just going to read you several accounts of what scripture teaches about this ungodly people being transferred to the godly people. Because apart from the work of Christ, all people are in the ungodly group because of sin. But because of the work of the gospel, now there are people who are in the godly group because of the mercy and the salvation of God. Once you were dead in the trespasses of sins and once you once walked 
following the course of this world, following the prince, the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Paul says we were all there carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul's got no problem saying that apart from the work of God, all humanity falls into the ungodly category because we are born into sin. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he's loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, and by grace you have been saved. And he raises us up with him, and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The ungodly become godly. 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10, but you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you, look at this, out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The unrighteous become righteous. The dark are walking into the light. 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile, look at this, this is where they used to be, the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Because of the blood of Christ, believers, people are coming from the dark ways of their forefathers, of all humanity of sin, and are coming from the group of godly to godly. John 3, 16, we learn this growing up in church, but look at what's built into this text. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. In other words, John is saying, if you believe Jesus, you won't perish. If you don't, you will. So there's this truth built into the text that all humanity apart from Christ will perish, are sinful, are walking in an ungodly way. But that's where the hope is. But God, for God so loved that he gave his son that broken people, dark, rebelling people, don't read the accounts in Genesis and cast judgment. We too are of the same breed. We're of the same stock of people, sinful in nature. But God, in his mercy, loved the world that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. There is hope built in this passage and I couldn't help, but I had to throw in an Old Testament reference because I love it. Isaiah 53, this is before Jesus was even on the earth. Isaiah speaking as God talks through him, explains what Christ is going to be like and what Christ will do. Look at this text. Surely he, referring to the Messiah, has borne our griefs and he's carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, look at this, that brought us peace. So Isaiah is saying before the work of Christ, there was not peace between God and man. There was enmity. There was a war of rebellion. 
And Peter's saying God will win and God will punish sin, but he's also made a way. There will be salvation for those who believe. And Isaiah prophesies what the Messiah will do. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord Yahweh has laid on the Messiah the iniquity of us all. Referring to the church, God's people. So there are two camps. There are ungodly. We were all born in that group. But in God's mercy and his grace, when I ask the question, how? How could a godly be moved to godly? As I read the accounts of Genesis, I can't apologize for feeling the weight. Because that was you. That was me. To all around us who do not follow the gospel, do not believe that is their destination. I think we easily downplay it and forget it because it hurts and it's heavy. But there's hope. There's hope in the heaviness. Peter, Paul, the writers, Isaiah, Jesus himself, John said, for God so loved that if you would just believe, God has made a way. Stop casting judgment upon God for judging sin. Stop being mad at God for being wrathful against unrighteousness. Look at his mercy. He sent his own son to pay the price for your sin and my sin, the iniquity of us all. If we believe in the gospel, Ephesians in chapter two, he says, it's by faith that we are saved, faith in the work of Jesus. We are now in the group of godly. We are declared righteous. This word we talk about, justification. We are righteous in the eyes of God because we have been imputed with the righteousness of Christ. If we believe in the gospel, we are adopted into the family. We are children of God. We're no longer children of wrath. We are godly. We are no longer ungodly. Take hope if you've believed. And if you haven't, hear me. Hear the words of scripture. It's not just what I'm saying. It's what Peter's saying. It's what God is saying through his people as we worship God for his gracious acts of rescuing his people, let us first worship God for making his people in the first place. And so Peter says, God knows how to rescue the godly. And don't forget, don't misunderstand Peter. He's saying God knows how to punish sin of unrighteousness. And yes, he's referring to false teachers. But as we go on to read next week, he's referring to the false teachers, the false teachings themselves, and any who would believe any false teaching apart from the gospel, all apart from Christ. He says there's judgment, but there's hope built in the text. It's right there. He doesn't have to come out and explicitly say it. He's already said it in chapter one. All are ungodly, but somehow God is working. And through faith in the work of Christ, there are now people who are considered godly that would be godly apart from, that would be ungodly apart from Jesus. And so as I close up, I told Brandon that, you know, they didn't have a clock back there today. So I said, if you don't have a clock, then I just have to, I just have to finish. So if we are now the children of God and just spend all that time just digging into that. We are now, if you have believed in Jesus Christ, you have believed in the gospel. Chapter one, Peter talks about these attributes that are growing. Paul talks about the fruit of the spirit. You're now the children of God. Peter gives us insight 
into what the godly are supposed to look like, what godly are supposed to be doing. In chapter 1, he gives us a whole list. You can go back and read it. It's really awesome. He talks about these qualities, these traits of believers. But even using these Old Testament references, you can see, and I told you we would keep going back to these passages, you can see this understanding of the fruit of the godly. In Noah, he specifically mentions he was a herald of righteousness, proclaiming the truth of God. In his day, his truth was, as he's hammering away for a really long time, and people are like, what are you doing? He said, just get on the boat. God spoke to me. Oh, did he? No, I promise he did. He's coming for the sin. Get on the boat. And then they're like, "Uh, you're building a boat in the middle of the desert, Noah. You're an idiot. And so he just continues to hammer. And even if we don't know, like, did Noah stand up and preach? But even with each hammer blow of his obedience, the message of righteousness was being proclaimed. God was coming justly upon sin. And through Noah's example, there was a proclamation of truth of God. But then also, we see Lot's situation. Peter refers to Lot as righteous, and he says it's because he was torn. He says his heart was tormented because of the sin around him. So think about that. These descriptions, and again in chapter 1 he talks about qualities of believers. But as we talk about people going from the group of ungodly into the group of godly, unrighteous into righteous, he also gives us some hints at what, what godly and righteous, because of faith in the gospel, what this fruit is to look like. Chapter 1 he gives us this list, but even in these Old Testament references, we see that believers in the gospel, believers in God, even in the Old Testament, as they're obediently following what God has called them to do, Proclaim the truth of what God has spoken. And in our context, it's the gospel. But they are torn over the sin around them. They're tormented in our hearts of the sin and unrighteousness around us. Not that we stand in a place of judgment, but that we step out and we proclaim the gospel as we see the depravity of sin around us. And so in close with these two questions, have you been made righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. As we look at going from godly to ungodly and this beauty of the gospel, this transformation of humanity, those who would believe, have you believed? Question 3B, just really a way that I could get six questions into a sermon without putting six. It doesn't feel as daunting. If so, is your heart tormented in using the word that Peter uses or broken by sin? And do you proclaim gospel truth as we look at Noah, a herald of righteousness? In our context, that righteousness is the gospel that we proclaim. So are these fruits of our lives? And so in close, thinking about all of this, a lot of heaviness, there is encouragement because Peter's writing it to encourage and stir up the church Next week, we're going to look at these false teachers. We're going to look at what they were teaching. We're going to look at the fruit of their lives. Because we spent time looking at the fruit of believers. Now Peter's going to really begin to dig in and say, this is what false teachers look like. Jesus said, you'll know it by their fruit. We're going to talk about that. But right in the middle of all this, Peter does this beautiful job of making two claims about who God is and giving us scriptural support from the Old Testament about why it is to be true And it's an encouragement to the church. 
And as we think about these two claims, God knows how to rescue the godly from trial. Take hope in that. As we are also going to talk about false teachers, we are also surrounded by false teachings. God knows how to rescue. And he is with us and sees us. Take hope. God knows how to punish. And as we were doing sermon prep for this, um, Nancy said, you know, it's like she, did, like she was just saying that God takes care of his people. A few minutes later, referring to the second part of verse 9, she said, and God takes care of those who aren't his people. That's a great reminder. Remember, God will deliver and rescue his people. It's not our position. It's not our job. God will take care of sin. And so in the meantime, let us proclaim gospel truth and walk in righteousness. Let me pray. God, thank you for this opportunity to come to your word. Thank you for this group of people coming together in our attentive ears and hearts. I pray that you would help us to be more like you. Help us to leave today and answer the question, what have we learned about God? Have we learned more about who you are today in your holiness and in your mercy? I pray that you would encourage the church as you were encouraging the church through Peter in their day. We would take hope that you see that you are walking and you are um, seeing all, all things. You see the righteous and the godly. You see the unrighteous. You will take care of things in your due time. Help us to be faithful in the meantime to proclaim your truth and to be torn in our hearts over the sin around us and to continue to go out in our communities and to proclaim the gospel as we wait for your soon return. Jesus, we love you and we praise you. And it's in your name we pray, amen. So with that being said, I don't think we're gonna pass the mic around today. Uh, we're gonna take a time of communion um, and then we'll finish out with one more song of worship.